Hey book nerds, welcome back to Lively Literature. Sorry it's been a while since our last episode. I've been studying for finals and dealing with the rest of holiday hubbub. Hope you can forgive me. Today we're going to start chapter 3. Chapter 3. Between the dark and the daylight, when the night is beginning to lower, comes a pause in the day's occupations. That is known as the Children's Hour, by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, The Children's Hour. For mothers of school-aged children, the first signs of fall are not the yellowing of leaves or the nip of a night air. They are the back-to-school sales, the purchase of book bags, binders, and pens, and the mix of panic and excitement on the faces of their children. Doris Bridges sat on her heels on the floor of her library and fingered the old, worn copy of the Dr. Seuss's children's book. She was feeling a wave of melancholy, having just said goodbye to her eldest son, Bobby Jr., on his way to college. He was the first to leave the nest, and his absence left a gaping, empty space in her heart. Opening the book, she was flooded with memories of the countless times she'd read this story to Sarah and Bobby in this very room. They all love Dr. Seuss's fantasy worlds. The children know more than her. How she used to enjoy watching their small tongues roll their strange-sounding syllables in their mouths. Each child had a favorite. Sarah's was the faithful elephant who would not desert his friends in Horton Hears a Who. Bobby's was the rhyming, rhythmic marching beat of greed, eggs, and ham. She'd secretly loved it when they tussled over who could climb into her ample lap, finally settling the dispute with one leaning over her left thigh and the other over her right. If she closed her eyes, she could almost feel the soft pressure of their heads resting against her breasts at this very moment, feel the moistness of their foreheads after a bath, and smell the sweetness of their wispy hair. Ah, such a perfume, ambrosia. God must have created it just for mothers. The scent stirred primal instincts to love and protect the babies. Her babies. Doris sighed heavily and opened her eyes feeling a wave of weepiness. All that lay on her lap now was an open book in hands that were so much older, wide, freckled hands with large rings and painted nails. She remembered she hadn't worn large rings for the fear they'd scratch her babies. The sound of her children's voices was still so clear in her memory, at times, such as these high-pitched sing-song overwhelmed all other noise, so precious as they were. As they were treasured images of her young family, with RJ beside her, laughing his big, boisterous laugh. Where did the time go? Where did they all go? Sometimes that felt like she... Sometimes she felt like all she had left were these books. That like Horton, the big clumsy elephant, she wanted to stand up in this huge, painstakingly decorated house, 
that amounted to no more than a speck of dust in the real world and shout from the top of her lungs i am here i am here she lowered her head and sniffed feeling a vast dark cloud envelop her rj walked into the library with his usual bluster and stopped a few feet from her from behind her lowered lids she saw that he stood with his feet his feet wide apart and could envision his hands on his hips she cringed knowing with without looking that he was frowning in disgust to find her once again wallowing teary-eyed in her memories she felt so sad so often lately and thought and though she tried to hide it sometimes the tears just spilled out that lack of control frightened her and it annoyed rj to no end you've got to get out more he said frustration ringing in his voice oh i'm all right she replied with summoned cheer forcing a tremulous smile and quickly wiping her eyes i just got a little emotional when i saw this book remember how i used to read it to the children it was one of their favorites listen i forgot to give these to john this afternoon rj said ignoring her question could you run it over for him she looked up over her shoulder to see rj dressed in a sporty linen trouser and blue jacket ensemble and smelling of aftershave his thinning brown hair streaked handsomely with gray was slicked back and he had what mother called spit and polish in his hands he held a large manila envelope out toward her are you going out she in turn ignored the envelope i've got to be downtown in half an hour i don't have time to drop these off myself just tell him i need to take i need his take on these blueprints asap It was more of a command than a request, and Doris had set the children's book in her lap with a heavy sigh that spoke clearly of her unwillingness. She looked forward to an hour of reading before she prepared dinner. Besides, she didn't like going over to John's house. She might run into Annie. Lately, the quiet rivalry between them had escalated into a war. They still attended the book club together, and the lunches, and what have you. But underneath that polite smiles, both women recognized the teeth were bared. Why can't he come over and pick them up? He works for you, after all. He's working on his house, knee-deep in drywall. He's always working on that house. It's like they're living in a camp. Nothing ever works. There's no place to sit and the junk and the materials are all over the place. You'd think he'd bring it in some help just to get it done. Her exasperation knew no end when people couldn't get their living quarters in order. I don't know how they can live like that. What do you care? He wants to do it himself. But they've, remodel they've been remodeling that house for over a year. I don't know how Annie puts up with that. Annie's a good sport. And she's not hung up about stuff like that. The underlying criticism stung and made her resent Annie just that much more. 
Besides, RJ continued, John's not just any carpenter. He's a goddamn artist. And that old house just happens to be a Frank Lloyd Wright. He shrugged. I don't blame him. He doesn't want anyone else mucking it up. He and Annie are taking their time, getting it done right. Aren't you suddenly the artistic one, she replied acidly, wanting to return a small dig of her own. If I remember correctly, you're the one always grumbling about how long it takes John to get anything done. It does. I hate for things to go slow when it's costing me money, but I'm smart enough to know John's the best and to leave him alone, at least on his own projects. He can do what he wants in his spare time. He looked at his wristwatch and frowned. Come on, I don't have time to yak about it. Just drop it off, will you? You've got nothing better to do. That hurt in so many ways. Here, he said, holding out the manila envelope in front of her and giving it a brisk shake. You can always hang around and talk to Annie. Doris heard the terrorousness in his voice that signaled an explosion if she didn't back off, so she expected, accepted the envelope and the task with a testy grab. It was on the tip of her tongue to tell him that talking to Annie was precisely what she wanted to avoid, but he wouldn't understand or care. As far as RJ was concerned, he and John were friends, so Annie and she must be friends. It made things easier for him. She recalled meeting Annie, Blank, Annie Blake five years earlier when RJ hired John away from rival, from a rival Chicago building firm. John Stevens was their head carpenter, a well-respected craftsman, and RJ had spotted his potential immediately. Doris had never understood why John took the job as design consultant for Bridges Building Company when his job description was, as far as she could tell, chief lackey. His pay was pitiful. It was only RJ's perversity that kept it low. John was loyal and worked like a dog for him. She knew RJ liked to be in control and have people beholden to him, thus emotionally chained to his side. So instead of actual money, he preferred to give perks. And one of those perks was a great deal on the run-down Frank Lloyd Wright that RJ had purchased for renovation. To a craftsman like John Stevens, the house was a once-in-a-lifetime dream. RJ knew it, had, knew it and had, had used it as bait. Fortunately, the two men clipped within months, becoming inseparable. RJ was the front man, the architect with the plans and the deal. John was the quiet artist, adding style and focusing to the designs. It was an award-winning combination. It was inevitable that the wives would meet, and it was expected that they would become equally good friends. Well, she tried, Doris told herself. She didn't invite... Didn't she invite her to the book club? But Annie Blank was a re Annie Blake was a renegade who didn't like to follow Doris's lead, and there was a subtle struggle between them during the book discussions as to who was the leader. There was no hope that they'd ever become friends. Doris decided, dragging herself 
up to her feet. RJ offered her his hand, and she struggled not to lean too heavily, lest he comes lest he comment on her weight. I don't know why you two gals don't get along better, he said when she was on her feet. You two are like oil and water. Baking soda and vinegar is more like it. She didn't mention that lately Annie's attachment to Eve was the last straw. It made Doris feel as if she were in seventh grade again, and someone was trying to come between her and her best friend. Where are you going tonight? she asked RJ, as he went to the desk to retrieve some papers. I'm meeting some clients at the club. I'll be late. I'll wait up. Don't bother. If it gets too late, I'll just stay at the club. I don't like to drink and drive. Then don't drink. He merely snorted while he patted his pockets, locating his keys. He pulled them out and tossed them into the air, then caught them with a boyfish flip of his wrist, smiling. Doris narrowed her eyes, noticing a flashing noting a flashing on his baby finger. It was a narrow gold and black oenix ring with a single diamond in the center that she'd never seen before. It was a handsome ring, discreet, yet her nose crinkled as if she suddenly caught a foul scent. She knew RJ never brought himself jewelry, and her father had always distrusted men who wore pinky rings. He bent at the waist to deliver a chaste, dry kiss on the top of her head, and an affectionate pat on her shoulder. Thanks for dropping that off. She held herself erect, though her calves were killing her, watching as he strode from the room with a jaunty gait without so much as a backward glance. RJ always had such purpose and drive. It was clear he was a man with a mission tonight. Doris slowly replaced the Dr. Seuss book on the library shelf, padding it into a neat line with the other books. Then she calmly, methodically held out her left hand and with her right twiddled the wide band of diamonds on her wedding ring, musing over the fact that in 25 years of marriage, she could never once recall R.J. Bridges worrying about drinking and driving. Annie hung up the phone in her kitchen and smiled with satisfaction. You look like the cat ate the canary. She looked up at her husband perched on a ladder across the endless piles of dust, tools, and wall board that littered the floor between them. He wore his white overalls without a shirt underneath, exposing his long, lean, tan torso in the sinewy muscles still those of a man twenty years his junior. John's blonde hair was tied back into a stubby ponytail, making making his prominent cheekbones all the more pronounced on his narrow face. My, 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 he was a handsome man, she thought, feeling a familiar surge. She caught his eye, and by the way his own gaze sparkled, and his smile widened, she knew he was picking up her thoughts, or the gist of them anyway. John had 
a highly turned radar for tuned radar for sex. She saw a glance. She saw him glance at the clock and chuckle, then turned his head to raise one brow suggestively. It was five o'clock on the bottom, her favorite time of day for lovemaking. They called it the children's hour, since they'd started trying to make a baby. That was Doris, Annie, compl- Annie replied, slipping out of her sandals. She's going to stop by later on to drop up some papers for you to look at. Apparently, RJ is off to a dinner meeting somewhere. John began whipping, wiping his hands with the towel hanging from the ladder. That must be about the Delancey building. I thought I was going to be at dinner. It's supposed, it's supposed to be a very chummy drinks and a cigar kind of thing. She pulled the elastic out from her hair. I guess we're not chums. He frowned, rolling up a ball of tape. Sure we are. We're both friends with Bridges. Correction. You work for RJ, and I'm in the book club with Doris. She stopped shaking her hair. She stopped shaking out her hair and rested her hands on her hips. We're neither... We're neither of us their real friend. John scowled. She knew it hurt him to imply that he wasn't an equal to R.J. Bridges and his upper-crust friends. Not financially, certainly, but John considered himself as an equal intellectually. That man-to-man kind of thing, and it hurt her that he was either too dumb or too stubborn to see that R.J. would never allow any equal footing in business, much less someone he preferred to keep under his foot. She'd known a lot of things. She'd known lots of men like that, especially in the legal field. It was as though her, a woman, winning a court case somehow emasculated male lawyers. When it came to the sexes, justice still wore a cloth over her eyes. She understood this about R.J. Bridges from the first night she met him. From the heat in his palm, when he took her hand to the way he could undress a woman with his eyes and make her feel dirty. But John didn't. He didn't have the killer instinct, and she loved him for it. She sighed, seeing the hurt blaze in John's brilliant blue eyes. Her dear, innocent, trusting John. She'd been there to protect him from predators like RJ. I'll be your best friend, she said, sliding up onto the ladder and tugging at the cups of his overalls. Wanna come down and play? The sulk vanished instantly as he caught wind of her playful mood. He cocked his head off and offered a half-smile. What do you want to play? Well, I thought we'd take off all our clothes first, she said, while she very gently, while very gently rotating her lips and unbuttoning her white cotton blouse with teasing slowness. Then take a nice hot shower. Oh, we'll let that hard pulsating water beat down our backs while we lather up the soap and spread it over every 
inch of our slicky, wet bodies. She cast a slow-eyed glance his way and pursed her lips to disguise her smile of delight. His eyes already glazed over, and he had a stillness about him like a cat coiling to pounce. Her own heart began to race at the thought of what she knew was coming. What then? His voice was raspy. She unbuttoned another button with agonizing slowness. She knew it drove him mad with desire when she stripped slowly to build, to build the anticipation. It was a pleasure for the both of them, actually, for her to tease and for him to make the final decisive move. In their lovemaking, John was dominant. In this arena, he asserted himself in ways that he did not in their everyday life. She strolled over to the stereo and turned on blues music, then moved to the refrigerator where she pulled out a bottle of chilled white wine. All the while, she played the classic stripper's game of hide-and-seek, offering a flash of skin that he never quite saw, all the while maintaining eye contact with him. Annie poured two glasses of wine, then took a long, slow slip, long, slow sip, licking her lips when she finished. I think I'd like a nice, fat, red, juicy strawberry in mine. His eyes sparkled, transmitting his glance in the message that he vividly recalled what they'd done with strawberries a few nights earlier. Annie slowly wriggled out of her blouse, letting the cotton slide off her arms to the floor. She wasn't wearing a bra, and her small but round, firm breasts, her mouth watering, mouth wateringly bright, exposing rosy taut nipples to the color, the color of strawberries. John licked his lips. Next, she slowly unzipped her jeans, undulating her hips free as she lifted one leg then the other and kicked the pants across the floor. John practically threw himself from the ladder, leaping down to her side, grasping her against his torso. She loved it when he was wild like this, so hungry for sex that his body trembled with excitement. He was quick to arouse, ready whenever she was. It was an insatiable lover. She'd fallen in lust with him first, but it was his skill and tenderness as a lover that broke down her defenses and made her fall in love with him. With nimble fingers that could peel veneer, he unfastened his overalls and removed both their underwear. His tongue never once leaving her mouth as he tasted the tasted and devoured the sweetness she'd promised. John, wait, wait, she mumbled under his lips, laughing. Dinner, I have to get the ham. He pulled her down onto the drop cloth, spreading her out beneath him, fully intending to feast. Forget the ham, he said, dragging his lips down her throat. I have a sudden craving for strawberries. 
Doris parked her Lexus at the curb of John and Annie's house, anxious to deliver the envelope and get out as soon as possible. She harumphed to see the front entryway of the house was under a scaffolding. She'd have to make her way around the piles of brick and wood that lay like hulking beasts in the driveway to get to the rear entrance. She clucked her tongue in annoyance as she trudged around the rear door of the low, spreading brick, brown brick house, careful not to step on any tools or trip in any holes. She was panting with the effort, and by the time she'd climbed up the back porch and rang the doorbell, she tapped her foot after a moment and rang it again. The button was soft to the touch. She cursed under her breath, realizing that it, like everything else in the house, probably wasn't working. Was anyone even home? She didn't hear anything. Doris walked to one of the kitchen windows, leaning far over the pair of wooden horses peeked inside. Her breath stilled in her throat as she caught sight of John and Annie slow dancing in the quiet room to the beat of some, some inner love song. His sinewy arms, bare under his overalls, held Annie's nude body against his long torso in a tight, possessive manner. He, his tanned hands cupped her alablaster hips, while her slim arms clung around his shoulders so close her nose and lips were pressed against his neck. They swayed with hips joined and eyes closed. The passion between them was palpable, and Doris gazed on with longing. When John pulled Annie's head back in a hungry, devouring kiss, Doris licked her own parched lips and sighed. She stepped back from the window, feeling the, an excruciating emptiness in her heart. A, shivery, a shiver of envy swept through her for that kind of tenderness in her own life. She tucked the envelope securely between the back door and the screen, careful not to disturb the lovers, and quietly left the house unobserved. She walked away with a shaky gait across the uneven flagstone. Doris wasn't ready to return to her empty house. On the way home, she stopped by Eve's place for some cheer and conversation. She hadn't seen much of her since Tom's funeral, though everyone had tried to call or just stop by frequently, but Eve was firm in her refusals, preferring her self-imposed exile. Eve's house was impressive red brick structure, well situated on a large property bordered by a black iron fence and ancient towering pines. Driving through the gates, Doris thought again how she'd always admired Eve's ability to soften hard edges in both her landscape designs and her relationships with people, just as the harsh straight lines of the prairie architecture were rounded by Eve's fabulous curved perennial beds and shrubs. So had her warm, womanly nature doused many flare-ups between obstinate opponents, both in committee meetings and on the playground. Doris missed Eve's presence in her life. She missed her friendship. 
Doris hadn't known that losing Tom would also mean losing her best friend. It wasn't fair. Eve was the friend who lugged over a bag full of perennials to share from her garden, or who picked up Sarah if Doris was ill. If she was the one Doris would she was the one Doris would call if she was in a pinch or just needed to talk. As she walked from her car to the front door, Doris was dis was dismayed to see Eve's garden in such a wilderness. Dried leaves drooped under bent flower heads that had appeared to be given up that had appeared to have given up the battle against choking weeds. The front curtains were drawn against the daylight, adding to the mood of neglect. All bad signs. Gathering her resolve, Doris knocked on the door. After a moment, the door opened, revealing Eve's pale, drawn face. She stood blinking in the sunshine, then forced a smile and exclaimed delight in seeing her. Her eyes, however, were lifeless. I'm all alone tonight, Doris announced, stepping into her soft floral foyer. The house was dimly lit and as gloomy as a tomb. And I seem to remember your children are at camp, right? Yes, and I miss them terribly, Eve replied, closing the door. Bronte and Finney have been there for a week already and still have one more to go. They seem to like it well enough. Their doctor thought it would be good for them to get some fresh air and new scenery. But it seems so quiet here without them, without... Her voice faded, and her eyes seemed to glaze over in the pain. Doris thought that it was a shame that was was no camp for Eve to go to. Her pallor and thinness was a telltale sign that she wasn't going out or eating well. So we're both alone. Do you want to go to dinner? Eve rubbed her thin arms with her fingers and shook her head. No, not really. I feel so tired. Actually, I was going to go to bed early tonight. Maybe watch a little TV. She yawned and covered her mouth with her palm. I'm sorry, she said, shaking her head. I just can't seem to get enough sleep lately. Are you well? Dora scanned Eve's face. You look so pale and you've lost weight. Eve waved away her concern. I'm fine. It's just being inside and alone so much. I've tried to call you, Doris interrupted. I know you have. Everyone has, and I am grateful. But it's not your company I am lonely for. It's Tom's, she said with the air of confession. The sadness inside me is so big it just sucks the energy straight from my bones. Then she smiled a bit too brightly, as though to... Dispel any doubt that anything was amiss. Oh, don't worry. I hear it's normal. This is what the doctors call normal grieving. It's just a phase. It doesn't sound normal to me. You shouldn't be alone. I like being alone. But it's not good to be alone too much. Everything in moderation. Come out to dinner with me. Eve shook her head. I'm just not in the mood. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude. Think of this period as a kind of hibernation. I need to sleep for a while, okay? I'll be my old self in time. Doris looked at Eve with doubt. She knew in her heart that she couldn't leave, shouldn't leave Eve alone yet. Couldn't think of what to do to lure her out of her isolation.
Doris was the type to fix things when they were broken. She couldn't abide in a tear of a dress or serve coffee in a chip cup, and it was obvious to her that Eve was somehow, well, broken. Then she thought of the garden and knew how to lure Eve outdoors. After all, a woman always felt better when her garden was in order. All right, you win. We won't go out to dinner, but your garden looks a little tired, don't you think? Let's take a few minutes to put your garden to bed, like we used to. It's a lovely evening. Come on. No laziness. It's gotta get done. Go get your gloves and a pair for me. We can make a dent before the sun disappears completely. Doris thought she caught a flicker of interest. Eve raised one brow, shrugged, and then a small smile of resignation eased across her slender face. Doris beamed with elevation, elation for having succeeded and gratitude for not having to be alone this evening. Rolling up her sleeves, she felt flush with relief that she wouldn't have time to recall the love and passion she'd witnessed in Annie's marriage, then compare it to her own. Eve wasn't the only one who needed care and mending to tonight. Feeling a sudden surge of energy, Doris followed Eve into the kitchen, flicked on a light, and called out, Why don't I just make a quick call to the North Star and order some Chinese for dinner? Right, book nerds, that brings us to the end of chapter three, where Doris's offer to help Eve with her garden creates a creates the beginning of a less reclusive state from Eve after having lost her husband, Tom. I apologize once again for not having created more installments over this holiday time. I will try my best to continue a more regular schedule as time goes on. Thank you very much. Until next time, book nerds. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Book Club by Mary Alice Monroe on Lively Literature.